Father, we do look forward to that day that we will be with you, that we will be with one another, those who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son, where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, where those first things have passed away and new things have come. Lord, we look forward to that. And Father, yet we understand that until that time you are working through us on this earth and you are desiring to accomplish your will, that your word would go out, that people would be saved and become more like Christ. And I pray as we look into your word, that's exactly what will happen today. You'll prepare our hearts, soften them, that we would receive it, that we would be instructed so that uh, you would be glorified. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been around the body of Christ very long, you'll recognize that those who are who truly come to faith in Jesus Christ have a testimony, a testify of what Christ has done in their lives. And there are many testimonies of people who were absolute wretches, absolutely wicked, and that Christ got a hold of their lives and changed them. But there are not many testimonies of those who were very righteous and got got a hold of their lives and saved them and changed them. Today we're going to see uh, and peek into the head of one who lived a righteous life externally. And found Christ, or better said, Christ found him. We're going to be looking at Paul's testimony, the first portion of it today. And I believe we're going to begin to see, uh, again, the marks of a true believer. And as we look at this passage, it will be helpful to see where is my heart in relationship to the word of God and and, uh, the example of the Apostle Paul to help us analyze and see where we are with the Lord. Now, we've been going through the book of Philippians And so would you turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 7. Now the Apostle Paul is writing a dear group of believers in Philippi. He is under house arrest for preaching the gospel, and this is one of his four prison epistles, most likely written around 62 AD. It's been about 10 years since uh, he had come and shared the gospel, and we had Lydia and her family and the Philippian jailer and his families coming to faith in Jesus Christ the nucleus of the, of the Philippian church. And the Apostle Paul is very close to them, and they've supported him when no other church supported him. And within that, he is thankful. He's very thankful. He shares this in the beginning of the letter. He's thankful for God's work in them, his past work in their lives. And he is confident that God will complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he prays for them that their love for Christ will abound but it will abound in true knowledge and all discernment, that they would be able to, to uh, understand and choose the excellent things, to, to have behavior in Christ that matches a right relationship with Christ, things that would glorify God. And the Apostle Paul has shared his circumstances, that although they're terrible, that he's in chains, but the gospel's not changed, and God has used it for a greater advance of the gospel. And so he's thankful, and he desires in everything Christ to be magnified. 
He shares uh, his circumstances that he may, he may, it's possible, physically speaking, that he could go before Caesar, or he is going to go before Caesar, and that he might be put to death. And he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To die as a believer is far better, but, but if the Lord wants to keep us, then we're here to serve one another as we serve him. And Paul saw that, that it was the Lord's will he seemed to, seemed to share, to stay on and serve the Philippians. And with that, we saw the Philippian circumstances, that they were to walk, as Apostle Paul, in a worthy manner, worthy of the gospel, that they were to strive together for the truth, that they were to uh, not be upset by the opposition, uh, knowing that, uh, that their response to that in Christ is a sign that their opposition's on their way to destruction, that they are on their way to glory. And we saw that within that, we are to, as believers, we were motivated by the common realities that we share as believers to, to see one another as more important than ourselves, to have a Christ-like mindset, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, uh, never be motivated by that, but yet we are to regard others in the body of Christ as supreme, seeing them as way more important than ourselves, scoping out ways to regard them as such. And then we saw how this can be done. It's only when we have the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. This is the mindset of, of humility and obedience, we see, where Christ took on human flesh. He became a servant. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, not of his deity, but being God and f- being fully God and fully man. He emptied himself, becoming a bondservant. And we see that he also humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the mindset of Christ to serve, to do God's will in the context of serving one another. And he came to serve, to not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom. And we saw because of that, because the sinless, spotless Lamb of God bore our sins in his body on the cross, he was exalted and given the name which he, which he possesses already, that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then we saw the first commands that we are to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us and that working it out is obedience. What God is doing, changing our mindset, our heart should, should manifest in our behavior, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we saw that first command within that do all things without complaining and arguing, right? Uh, we should never be complaining and arguing. And then we saw three selfless examples of exactly what he's talking about. He shared himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And then we came to chapter 3 where we were reminded, and he considered it right to remind us that there are dangers to our walk with Jesus Christ. There are dangers to our relationship with him. There are those within the body or who would come within that will attack, and we need to beware of them. There are those where Paul says, beware, beware, beware. They are, they are like dogs. They're like vicious animals. They're, they're evil workers. They're false brethren, false circumcision. They pretend to be truly of the Lord, but they are not. And then we saw the last time we were in uh, Philippians, Paul explains in contrast to the bad guys who are false 
what the true genuine, and he's pointing to really himself in their testimony, but also we see that for all believers. He says, for we are the true, uh, we are the true circumcision. We, we're not the false guys. And he gives a list of things that exemplify what true believers look like in practice, in a sense, who worship in the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God through the truth of God that brings about our worship, not the flesh. It's not a show. And then who glory or boast in Christ Jesus. We boast in Christ alone, not in self. And then he says, and it's so important because it, what we see today will key off of this portion and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. We're going to see that true believers don't put confidence in the flesh. We're tempted to, but you can't be saved if you put confidence in the flesh. And you can't be walking with the Lord when you put confidence in the flesh. And we're going to see the one who ultimately does so is cursed, who trusts in man and mankind versus trusting in the Lord. So with that in mind, we come to our passage today where we're going to see the marks of a true believer. We're going to see Paul's mindset before coming to Jesus Christ. We're going to see his mindset when he came to Jesus Christ. And then, Lord willing, next week, what his mindset is now after having come to Jesus Christ. And that's the mindset of a true believer. And we need to have our minds renewed because we get conformed to this world at times. We get corrupted at times. And we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so let's take a look at Paul's mindset before Christ. And we're going to see he had good uh, earthly or, or earthly reason to be confident in his flesh. Notice what he says. And I'm going to back up a little bit uh, to verse 1. And Bob read this earlier. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And then our passage keys off that statement. Although I myself, Paul says, might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has, else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he says here, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, found blame, righteousness in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So we're going to look at today, but it continues. It continues, and I want to read this portion as we heard earlier. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we have a wonderful passage, and we're just going to scratch the surface of it, but we're going to see a transition here from who Paul was before as an example to compare to those who are the false ones and who he is now. We're going to see that. So notice we're going to see the Apostle Paul before Christ 
had far greater reason to rely on his flesh than those false teachers who were trying to woo the Philippians to do the same. We know Paul wrote to the Galatians. He talked about those who were, uh, he said, who bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? You began by the Spirit. You're going to continue on in the flesh? You're going to do this, do this stuff in the flesh? Well, there are bad guys, and a lot of them were here, were Judaizers. They were those who claimed to follow Jesus Christ, but they were adding in the things of love. We see this these days in some Messianic congregations, by the way. They're Judaizers, adding in things from the law, not looking at them as what they were intended to be, shadows pointing to realities in Christ, adding those things in. And so these Judaizers are the ones that uh, seem to must, must have bragged about their credentials. And Paul's going to say, look, if anyone has a, has a reason to put uh, confidence in his flesh, I far more. I far more. Look at uh, verse, verse 3 again. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's saying you want to talk about fleshly qualifications in the spiritual sphere? I have them far more than these guys. If anyone could do that. And then he starts to talk. And you'll remember, we're talking about this portion where he is pointing out the false versus the true. He says, we are the true. And at the very end of that portion of verse 3, he says, who put no confidence in the flesh. Well, what's the flesh? The flesh speaks of mankind. The flesh speaks of man's abilities, man's righteousness, man's actions apart from God. Yes, we all live in the flesh, but believers, we live this life in the flesh by, by faith in the living God. But here we see, like those who don't know Christ, the false ones, they put their confidence in their fleshly abilities, in their fleshly uh, uh, accolades, and whatever it might be. And Paul says, hey, if we're going to do that, I could do it far more than any of these guys. And let me tell you about that. And he's going to go make the point that, all the stuff that he had, which is much greater than all these guys and all their stuff, is nothing. It's worth nothing. It's all actually loss on the ledger seat spiritually. You see, when we came, into, we came to faith, we had no confidence in the flesh. If you came to faith in Jesus Christ and you had any confidence in yourself or anyone else, you did not get saved. You did not get saved. You have to have complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ that his work was sufficient for salvation, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that God is the one through him bringing forgiveness of sins. When we got saved, we put no confidence in the flesh. And we are to continue to walk that way. As you have received Christ, so walk in him. We're to continue to do that. We're to continue to put no confidence in the flesh. And so he says here, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, and that's emphatic, me, I myself, I, I have great reason to have confidence in the flesh. Now this word confidence, it comes from the noun, uh, is the noun form of the Greek verb patho. And we saw it earlier in chapter 1, verse 6. He's confident they're going to complete the work. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14, verse 25, chapter 2, 24. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 3, right in the end. Right in the end of that verse. And again, he uses it here. 
And it's really a synonym for faith and trust. It's a synonym. You know, when we uh, trust in the Lord, we have confidence in Him. We put our confidence in Him, not in ourselves. And He's saying that right here. It speaks of being fully persuaded, being convinced, being sure, being certain, being certain. And Paul said in verse 3 that true believers put no confidence in the flesh. They don't trust in their flesh. They don't rely on their flesh, unlike the false circumcision. And so at this point, Paul makes it clear he had plenty of reasons to trust in the flesh. He had a long line of things which really would stack up religiously that he could say, hey, I could have done this, and I did. And he's going to say it. He's going to show us. He's saying, I'm more qualified to speak on this fleshly confidence probably than all those false teachers, than all of them. I'm more qualified to speak on that than each and every one of them. I far more. He says, I far more. And then he goes into a list of things in which he found confidence in before he had truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 4, Although I might have confidence even in the flesh, I myself, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I far more. And he's going to give this list. And first of all, he begins with his religious heritage, which was great. It was great. He says, circumcised, verse 5, the eighth day. Well, what's the significance of this accomplishment? This, what's the significance? Well, he was not a proselyte. He was not a late convert to Judaism. He was, in a sense, born into it. He had gone through the rite of circumcision as prescribed by the law on the eighth day. His parents had done that. And as you know from our reading of this passage, Paul is going to take a list of things which begin here with circumcision that he counted as gain on his spiritual ledger sheet. And after he's done, he's going to say, I count all of these as loss on that spiritual ledger sheet. Now you remember he had shared before that the bad guys were the false circumcision. They were false circumcision. Now, you might remember we talked a little bit about circumcision last time. Circumcision was an outward sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Genesis 17. And we saw that it was always an outward symbol of what God had meant to be an inward relationship. It was a sign of something that had changed. And in the Old Testament, the Lord God would share with those uh, who were not understanding that as such that they needed to circumcise their hearts the flesh and the sin need to be cut away that they'd be soft and right before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that sign should have been a symbol that they had a right relationship with the living God. But these false guys didn't. They trusted in the sign rather than the reality behind the sign. Deuteronomy 10:16. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. And so he says, hey, I had the outward symbol, eighth day. I wasn't a late convert. Circumcised the eighth day. Circumcised the eighth day. But yet, false brethren, false circumcisions always mutilate the truth, don't they? They distort it. They take the symbols and the signs and make them the priority rather than the realities behind those signs. It's very devious, isn't it? It's very devious. Folks, and nothing has changed. 
Yes, God commands us in Christ to be baptized, but that's an outward symbol of an inward reality. And people make the symbol something that makes you religiously profitable in a sense. The same thing with the sacraments. We are to remember with what Christ has done with the bread and the cup. But it's not the bread and the cup that bring grace to us. It is Jesus Christ who died on the cross. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And so those wicked people who take the signs and flip them over are just like the Judaizers and the Apostle Paul saying, hey, if you want to talk about qualifications, circumcised the eighth day. Circumcised the eighth day. He was born into it. He's saying, I've gone through that ritual. I've gone through that rite. And he considers its ability to bring righteousness and thus salvation. Later on, he'll say, a total loss. A total loss. Literally rubbish or dung. Literally rubbish or dung. He'll say in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Salvation is not through our own efforts. It's not through our own flesh. It's not through anything you can do in your flesh. It is through faith. We've been saved by faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, notice he continues in our passage of the list of things he formerly considered in the plus category of his spiritual ledger sheet before coming truly coming to Christ. He points out, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Of the nation of Israel. Now the term genos, or translated nation, here speaks of race. Speaks of race. A lot of people are proud of their race, aren't they? Some are proud of it just for the sake of the race, right? Hey, I'm Swedish, or whatever it might be. You know, and I elevate that in my mind over other people. I don't do that, but I'm just using an example, right? Or whatever it might be. And here, his pride for his race goes beyond that. It has a religious connotation to it. He says here, of the nation of Israel. He says, I'm a pure Jewish lineage. I used to have confidence in it and boast in it. Confidence in the flesh of my Jewish lineage. A Jew by birth, pure lineage. Unfortunately, that meant to him, as we see in Scripture, that he believed he was saved because of his lineage. He believed that Abraham, because Abraham was his father in the flesh, that he had a, an in to a relationship with the living God because of that lineage. And indeed, the Lord Jesus had to confront Jews in that, where they thought they were of their father Abraham. But he said, no, your father's the devil. Because they were still in their sins. They were slaves to sin. They had not been set free by the Son. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So he's saying, I have a pure Jewish lineage. Jewish lineage. He counted that as a plus. It was a fleshly accomplishment in a sense. It was something about him specifically. We see this today, don't we? Those who have been in the church, those who would prescribe maybe infant baptism, a covenantal theology. Now, why would they believe such rubbish that someone could be born into the church and and baptized because of their lineage? They believe that rubbish because they see, they trust in themselves. They put confidence in the flesh rather in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are not saved by virtue of our lineage. We are not saved. And Paul makes it clear that he used to boast in this. He used to put confidence in it. It was a spiritual gain, but it ultimately is a loss when you come to Christ. 
So then he says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. And then we see he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 5, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now it's important to note that the tribe of Benjamin was a high-ranking tribe. Certainly Judah and Benjamin were the most elite tribes of the nation. Now because Christ came from Judah, we'll see, we see it as the most important, absolutely. But the Jews of, of Paul's day, or Saul's day, Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul, they saw Benjamin as, as ranking as extremely important. And why so? First of all, Jacob's son Benjamin was the only one to be born in the promised land. They saw that as a big plus. Genesis 35. Secondly, Benjamin was always in the forefront when Israel would go to battle. They were very courageous. Judges 5.14 and Hosea 5.8. And the tribe, and which tribe of Israel did they, which tribe did Israel seek their king from, their first king? It was from the tribe of Benjamin where Saul uh, came. And also in Judges 121 points that the allotment of Benjamin within that, when they received their allotment of land, it included Jerusalem, the holy city. It was very important. Very important. And when the southern kingdom and northern kingdom split, Benjamin was the only tribe that stayed loyal, to Ju- loyal with Judah in the southern kingdom. And you might remember God used a man named Mordecai, a Benjamite, in the true story of Esther to preserve Israel. Right? It was a big deal to be a Benjamite. There was a lot of there was a lot of uh, uh, behind there was a lot behind that, at least at least physically speaking, or or in terms of our flesh. Very well, was a very high ranking, and so the Apostle Paul, before coming to Christ, had great reason to be confident in his fleshly heritage, way more than these false guys, great greatly superior to the Judaizers of his day. But he would consider all of it to be loss. And notice what he says in verse 5. He's also a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying that he was a devout son of a devout family. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In Acts 22.3, Paul recounts how his family had sent him to study Jewish orthodoxy under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. And he was thoroughly trained in the law. Paul was a purebred Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was like a PK, a pastor's kid who was raised from day one to be a preacher. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he had great confidence in his heritage. This worldly, a good, a good, a good confidence in this heritage. He had confidence in it, seeing it as good, seeing it as a plus. And he had good worldly reason to do so. But as we're going to see, the saving power of that heritage, there is none. There is none. No religious virtue is gained by birth. No religious virtue is gained by the family you grew up in. There's no virtue. Now, there's a blessing to hear the word of God. That's a blessing, but there's no, there's no virtue in that in and of itself. It doesn't put a plus on your side in relationship to the Lord in terms of righteousness. People have been raised in the church, raised in a denomination. Those who rest in the faith of their parents, genuine or not, have, may have fallen into the trap of trusting in their own spiritual heritage rather than Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in that heritage? Paul will state in a moment that all this is loss. All loss. It's all, as we're going to see, it's just destruction. 
The term loss spoke of total loss, of a ship being destroyed at sea. Total loss. Total loss. What are you trusting in? If it's anything but faith in Christ, it is rubbish. It is loss. Total loss. So Paul had good reason, earthly, worldly speaking, to, to trust in his heritage, right? But notice he also had reached the pinnacle religiousness in his accomplishments. Look at uh, this last phrase in verse 5. As to the law, as to the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee. You want to talk about religious qualifications? As to the law, a Pharisee. Now the term Pharisee literally meant separated ones. And the Pharisees came into existence during the intertestamental period, that 400 years uh, between the close of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, the first coming. And at this point in Jewish history, the Jews became, were becoming more like the Greeks, but the Pharisees separated themselves and tried to stop that advancement of Greek philosophy among the Jews. They were the separated ones. They became separatists who were meticulously focused on observance in the law, and they went way past those observances and added to them, and they were quite proud of it. Quite proud of it. At this time, out of uh, millions in Israel, there were only 600, or excuse me, 6,000 Pharisees. And Paul says, as to the law, a Pharisee. He had attained a religiously high position beyond his contemporaries. Galatians 1.14, I, what Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. And I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He's not talking about seeming zealous for the word. The traditions, that's the pharisaical traditions, by the way. Extremely zealous. He had reached the pinnacle of religiousness, and he was proud of his commitment to the law of God and the, those, those, uh, those, um, the law of God and those traditions. He had reached the pinnacle. But yet, as we're going to see, religiousness has no power to save. No power to save. It's actually loss. How do you see your actions, your observances, your commitment to the word, or whatever it might be? Do you see that as that that makes you righteous before God? It's not what you do that makes you righteous. It is who you have trusted in. Only trust in Jesus Christ brings true righteousness. And Paul makes it clear that his former, and he'll see it, all this religious accomplishment was worthless. Worthless. Everything on that list, worthless in view of a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, just because you go to church, observe God's word, go by the golden rule, whatever, pray, read your Bible, that doesn't make you a Christian. Christ makes you a Christian. When you trust in him, that's how you're saved. So he certainly had a religious accomplishment, but look, at he was also very sincere. His sincerity was unmatched in his zeal. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh... If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You want to talk about religious zeal or zealousness. He was so zealous he was a persecutor of the church. Back in Galatians 1.14, again, this is what he says. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and I was extremely 
zealous, extremely zealous uh, for the traditions of my father. He was so zealous, he persecuted those whom he sincerely believed were enemies of God. Indeed, his zeal had led him to persecute and chase Christians. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. To persecute, chase, and actually kill them. Acts chapter 8. This is after the stoning of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's speaking of Stephen. And on that day, great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But look at verse 3. But Saul, this is the apostle Paul, this is Saul before he was saved, Saul of Tarsus, began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Isn't that amazing? They weren't complaining. They were preaching the word, weren't they? But Saul went about ravaging house to house. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of his father. He, fathers, excuse me. Extremely zealous. He was sincere. But folks, you can be sincere and be absolutely wrong. The saying, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And this was Paul's case. Because he would count that religious zeal later on as loss. One pastor writes, the world is filled with the religiously sincere. People who are very sincere in their religion make great effort, personal sacrifice, high cost, pay the price, wanting to please God, very sincere. They go to church, some people every day, Every day, many Catholics go every day. People in religious people in religious pray in certain prayers each day. Very sincere in heart, wanting to do what's right, but God is not impressed. God is not impressed. Salvation does not come by sincerity. You can have a lot of zeal and be absolutely wrong. And Paul says, I thought I was right. I consider it now garbage when I met Christ. You can be sincere and be absolutely wrong. And it's the word of God that reveals the error of your heart. Unfortunately, there are many people who sincerely want to please God, but they are sincerely wrong. I went to seminary and there were many sincere people, but they were sincerely wrong. They based things on their own understanding, their own desires, and a twisted view of Scripture. You see this in the evangelical church these days, and they've become so naive. Anybody who says Jesus or likes evangelism is immediately brought in. Seem very sincere. I've noted many occasions where churches would not get rid of their pastors who were clearly wrong because they were so sincere about evangelism or Jesus. You can be sincere and be absolutely wrong. And in Paul's case, he would count that zeal as total loss, as, as, as a rubbish, as dung. So then Paul had confidence in his heritage. He had confidence in his religious accomplishment. He was zealously sincere. And lastly, notice, his religious righteousness was absolutely faultless. Look at the end of verse 6. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, back in Philippians 3, found blameless. 
What Paul means here is that by the standard of external law-keeping, he was without fault. That's what that word blameless means, faultless, no fault. You could look at God's law and you could look at Paul, you could say, there's nothing I can see that's wrong. He's obeying everything. Faultless. Faultless. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He did righteous things externally that were found in the law. And he was found faultless. Faultless. Paul had an external righteousness far greater than probably all of us. But he would find out on the road to Damascus and write about it later, inspired by the Spirit, that because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And as we're going to see, he counted that righteousness in his law-keeping after he met Christ as rubbish. Rubbish. The religious accomplishments I had on the plus side. Rubbish. Rubbish. You see, you can have it all religiously together on the outside and yet be not cleansed on the inside of your own sin. You see, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. The, apostle, or the Lord Jesus is going to address uh, some Pharisees, religious leaders, concerning their external cleanliness versus their internal godlessness and sin. By the way, don't you know we look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus, and you'll, you'll get, you won't get entrapped in that. By the way, Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes, and what? Pharisees. The apostle Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He was he was he was he was a guy, right? Scribes and Pharisees, and what does he say? Hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. He's speaking of, of the way they are on the outside, okay? It's an illustration. But on the inside, they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and then of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. That's how God works. It's the inside first. The bad guys do the outside and the inside is never clean. It's a cover. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which the outside appear beautiful, as to the righteousness found in the law, blameless, right? He appeared beautiful in his following of the Lord. And here the Lord Jesus says, Appear beautiful, but on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear, what? Righteous to men. By the way, people who, who are like this usually are in churches trying to lead people astray, by the way. That's what these bad guys were doing. And Paul says, hey, if they're doing that, I far more could have been, right? Appear righteous, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, the reality is if you're not cleansed of your sins, the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. But the incredible thing happened to the Apostle Paul. The incredible thing happened to Saul of Tarsus, who would be called the Apostle Paul. You see, his inheritance, his religiousness, his sincerity, his righteousness, he had confidence in that, yet something happened. Twenty-five years earlier, he met the risen, glorified Lord. 
Turn back to Acts chapter 26. Here the Apostle Paul is recounting his conversion. Acts chapter 26, verse 2. In regard to all the things which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Notice his respect, by the way. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth and up. He's talking about the things he just mentioned in our passage, right? Which were from the beginning, which was, beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. Verses middle of verse 7 of Acts 26. As for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered an incredible thing among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that if I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, so then I thought I, to myself I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as, as I punished them, and often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, being furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest, verse 13, at midday, O king. So he was out chasing. He was out chasing against believers, by the way. He says, O king, I was on my way. I saw on my way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The Apostle Paul did not know the Lord. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord saved him that day. And he responded, as we see in Scripture, he did respond, and he understood that righteousness is not through these things. He understood. He doesn't say that here, but we see that in Scripture, that all these things that he had on the plus side are, are nothing. They're loss. They're loss. But before he came to Christ, he was confident in his religious heritage. He was confident in his religious accomplishments. He was confident in his religious activity and sincerity. He was confident, but then when he met Christ, he considered all of that as loss. 
as worthless. So then in comparison to the false circumcision back to our passage in Philippians, Paul had far more qualifications to put confidence in the flesh. That was his mindset before coming to Christ. But notice his mindset after coming to Christ. Look at our passage. I'm going to read from verse 4 up to verse 7, which is where we're going to see that. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. The list is is spectacular, religiously speaking. But he says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We have a contrast. In contrast to those things that he used to believe were gain, profit. And you might think the things that you've done religiously profit you before God. There's no profit before God apart from total reliance on Jesus Christ. And he said, all that stuff, all that stuff, he says, those things that were gained, and, and the tense of this word was, they were continually, habitually in the past gained to me. That's the way I saw it all the time. That was my mindset. He says, I have counted, the word means to, to reckon, it's an accounting term. I have reckoned these things to be lost. And the term reckon is in a tense that means, I reckoned that in the past, done deal. I made the decision, done deal. And that still affects me now. I still believe the same thing. He says, those things that were gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I have counted. It speaks of making a decision after weighing the facts, considering, thinking, regarding, esteeming. I have counted them as loss. The term loss was spoken as an accounting term, but it also would speak of coming into a worsened situation. It would speak of damage. We see it in Acts about damaging ships that are damaged by storms. They're loss. Or a total loss. A ship hits the rocks. It's a total loss. It's a loss at sea. What he's saying is that when he came to Christ, or literally Christ came to him, all the advantages or gains he thought he had, he counted them now to be loss. And if you don't do that, you're not going to get saved. If you trust in anything, fleshly speaking, you will not be saved unless you are willing to say that is not an advantage. It is a loss. It is a loss. It is a detriment to coming to Christ. It is in the way. You have to reject that. You have to repudiate it and see it that way and continue to see it that way as Paul did. He says he counted it as loss. One pastor writes, it was not until he had his Damascus Road experience that he came to realize the bankruptcy of such blind religious dedication. Never in his wildest dreams did he regard the efforts or works as done, not until now, that is, until he met Christ. And he understood the truth of it all. How many of us can say the same? You see, we tend to see sin in terms of really bad things. Here, Paul was doing righteous things but he was doing them from the flesh. You see, apart from faith, you can't please God. And there may be some of you that have been really good. You grew up in a Christian home. You've done all the right things. You've been a good little boy or girl, whatever it is. And you think, because I've done that, hey, I know Christ. Those things don't put you in a good position with Christ. You've been blessed to be in a Christian home. You've been blessed to hear the gospel. 
But those things are lost. You need to recognize your sinfulness and your need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, and believe in him for salvation. You need to make the decision that those things are of no benefit spiritually in coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's by faith when we recognize our sinfulness. Now, why did Paul consider his heritage, religiousness, sincerity, and righteousness in the law as loss? He says, for the sake of Christ. On behalf of Christ or on account of Christ. It's because of Christ I see these things differently. And it is only because of Christ that you will see these things differently when you are willing to listen to him rather than stumble over him, when you're willing to take his truth and understand it and believe it. Because of Christ, on account of Christ. You see, you could be the best religiously, and it's nothing. It's nothing before the living God. It's like filthy garments. Whereas Paul would say later on, he'd say uh, refuge or dung. Isaiah makes it clear that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You think your righteous deeds, apart from trusting in Christ, are, are good in God's sight? Like a filthy garment. And when Paul saw Jesus, he recognized his righteousness was a total loss. A total loss. And it's only when we encounter the Son of God through the Word of God and the Gospel that we can see if we're willing to recognize the filth of our self-righteousness. It's when one truly encounters Christ through the Word that we can now see from God's point of view all of our religious works apart from Christ are filthy rags. We must come to a right understanding of our true spiritual condition before we can be saved. We must humble ourselves and believe what God says about our sinfulness like a little child would simply believe what their parent says. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The term poor in spirit means destitute. Blessed are the poor, spiritually poor, the spiritually destitute, those who are bankrupt before God, those who are bankrupt, those who are spiritually poor, those who have nothing to offer to God, who come to him seeking his mercy and his grace alone. That's when you are blessed. Turn to Luke chapter 18. It's only when one truly realizes their spiritual state that one can be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 18. You've got to realize your spiritual bankruptcy, and you may think you're religious, or whatever it is. Paul was the most religious. Luke 18, verse 9. And notice what the Lord says through his word here. What Luke, how Luke describes it. Luke 18, verse 9. And he, that's speaking of Jesus, also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's exactly what Paul did. That's exactly what maybe some of you were doing. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And notice what he says. And viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, notice, the, it's, notice what, who it is, a Pharisee. What was Paul? Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Saul. And the other, a tax gatherer. That's a, an, an hour, that's a sinner, by the way, someone who's, who's got a sinful lifestyle. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. That's very interesting, right? 
God, I thank thee that I am not like these other people, the swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax gatherer, standing at some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Lord Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or declared righteous rather than the others. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humble, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. You need to humble yourself before the living God and believe his description of you and turn to his solution, which is Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who are continually, habitually poor in spirit. If you've never humbled yourself before the living God, if you've never been truly convicted of your sinfulness, whether it's righteous sinfulness or wicked sinfulness, your absolute destitution before him, if you've never come to him as a child, just taking what he says at face value, believing it, realizing you have nothing to offer, that it is all from Christ, then you are not saved. But you can be saved if you're willing to humble yourself. Lord God, I'm a sinner. And I believe your son died for my sins. Have mercy on me. Save me. He'll save you. You'll be cleansed. You'll be justified. You'll be righteous. Before we can be saved, we must be convicted of our true state. We must see it as loss. We must see it that way. And on a side note, this doesn't stop at salvation, brothers and sisters. It continues in sanctification. As you have received Christ, so walk in him. We came destitute, unable, in, uh, we're not able to save ourselves. We totally trusted in him, and we do the same thing in our day-to-day walk. And when we fail, we confess, Lord God, I can't do it, but I trust you. Some people say, Lord, I can't do it, and then they never trust him. When you came to faith, you didn't do that. You said, I, I can't do it, but I believe you did. Trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Blessed are those who are continually, habitually poor in spirit. And Paul recognized that. But whatever things were continually in the past gained to me, those things I have reckoned in the past, done deal, and I still do as loss. Brothers and sisters, we're not adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to have that same dependence on Jesus as we raise our kids, the same dependence on him as we go to school, the same dependence on him as we go to our job, the same dependence as we preach and teach, the same dependence as we interact in our conversations with one another, the same dependence in every situation. Today we've seen the Apostle Paul, the testimony of him. A man who had incredible religious credentials. He had an incredible heritage. He had reached the pinnacle of religious accomplishment. A man who was zealous and sincere in his belief. A man who, according to God's word, the law, was on the outside blameless. But yet he was like every other man or woman that has walked this earth, a sinner, like you and I, all in need of a Savior. And Paul in the past believed that he was. And he turned, he trusted in Christ. And he considered all that as loss. All that is loss. 
Well, what's interesting we're going to see as we continue, we don't have time today, is that it's even so much more than that. It's so much more to be able to enter into a relationship with the living God and to know Him on a personal level and to walk with Him. To know the fellowship of His sufferings, to to walk with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. What does your spiritual ledger sheet look like? What are the pluses and minuses before the Lord? It should be all minuses. Lord God, it's all you. You saved me. You're sanctifying me. It's all you. Thank you. Maybe some of you today have never acknowledged your total inadequacy and bankruptcy before the Lord. That you have nothing that you could do or ever bring before him that will bring favor to him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Turn to him and believe in him. Be like that man. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Have a heart of of contriteness over your sin and an acknowledgement of it and, and a desire to have God's mercy upon you through Christ. And then for those of us believers, Paul considered those things in the flesh as lost in the past, and he still considered them to be that way. We need to still consider them to be that way. Don't let people come in and try to change you externally or make you be righteous on the outside or try to trick you. Beware, beware, beware. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, reliance on him from the inside that the outside will then be clean. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and your son Jesus. Thank you for the example of Saul of Tarsus, whom you saved. The Apostle Paul, who saw all those things as loss. And Father, I thank you that it's not just simply salvation. There's a relationship in Christ. And I pray that we would, as we move through these passages, gain a deep understanding for what is the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, in whom we've suffered the loss of all things. Father, we know that if you keep your life, you will lose it. If you give it up, you'll gain it. Saul did that. The Apostle Paul did. May we look to that example inspired in your word and renew our hearts and minds that we will be totally relying on your son Jesus. And we thank you for him. His name.